So I want to tell you a little bit about the heavenly messengers and the appearance of these messengers in the Buddha's life was a central, significant uh, time of, of transition for him. And they can be for us as well. So the Buddha... Uh, long before he was a Buddha, was born into a wealthy and powerful family as the prince, the heir apparent to his father, a powerful king. And the prophecy at his birth was that he would either become a great king or a great sage, a great saint. His father, on hearing this, determined that his son would succeed him and that he did so he did everything possible to keep his son happy to be in the palace and to give him whatever he wanted so that the uh, life of being a king would be very appealing to him. And so he lived that way, protected, spoiled, indulgent in a beautiful palace until his 29th year. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a Buddhist scholar and uh, monk of many years, beautiful writer as well, said this about this time in the Buddha-to-be's life. He said, Incarcerated in the splendor of his palace, amply supplied with sensual pleasures and surrounded by merry friends, the prince did not entertain even the faintest suspicion that life could offer anything other than an endless succession of amusements and festivities. It was only on a fateful day when, in his 29th year when curiosity led him out beyond the palace walls and he encountered the four divine messengers that were to change his destiny. The first three were the old person, a sick person, and a corpse, which taught him the shocking truths of old age, illness, and death. The fourth sight was of a wandering ascetic who revealed to him the existence of a path whereby all suffering such as illness, aging, and death, can be fully transcended. So the sight of these, what are called heavenly messengers, an old person, an ill person, a corpse, they're called heavenly in the sense that the sight of them arouses, wakes us up, arouses something in us that is perhaps shocked or is like awakened out of that trance of everything just being pleasant and as we expected. It's an unpredictable occurrence in an otherwise somewhat peaceful life. And it awoke in the prince a fervent longing to understand, to come to terms with the uh, how this could be, that there could be in life this, to 
to deal with as well, this aging, this illness, this death. So the heavenly messengers, the, this, the tale of it, the, the way in which it happened, speaks of what motivated this young prince to go on a spiritual quest. It was what propelled him to leave behind his comfortable life. It was the disquieting encounter with the parts of life we most fear. We fear aging, illness, and death. The parts of life that are unwanted, that seem most alien to what life is about, our usual goals and aspirations. I like to share this New Yorker cartoon of a couple in uh, the minister's office planning their wedding vows. And uh, the the, the husband-to-be, the man, is saying to the minister, and they're both smiling quite, you know, happy to be there. The man is saying to the minister, we'd like you to leave out the poor sickness and death parts. (laughs) They're a little dark. (laughs) We would like to leave out those parts, wouldn't we? But we cannot. We try to protect ourselves, and our culture colludes with us in our desire to look the other way, to not age, not be ill, not die. We would rather be immortal. Or in the words of Jonathan Swift, everyone wants to live long, but no one wants to grow old. (laughs) How protected have we been so far from illness or aging or death? How closely have you encountered in your own life the reality of the heavenly messengers? For some of us, and certainly I was in this category when I was young, the heavenly messengers may seem quite distant, quite far away, like the reality of getting old when you're young is just very, very far away. We hear about it, but it is like news from afar, nothing to do with me or my life. On the streets of San Francisco, two young women were heard speaking, and one young woman was saying to the other, you know, in this world, there's old people and young people. We just lucked out. When we are young, we sort of don't believe it will happen to us. It just won't happen. We're young. That's what's important. Later on in life, we may hear of someone ill or dying, but they are unknown to us. Eventually, as we go on in life, one or more of the heavenly messengers appears a little more closely. Perhaps someone we know at work or a neighbor, or an elderly relative is ill, possibly dying. We hear about it, but it's still somewhat distant, and nothing is being asked of us. So we avoid, you know, any further involvement. We We don't get closer to it. But eventually... A heavenly messenger will appear close to you. Someone in your family, 
your partner, your child, your parent, your cousin, your pet, your baby, someone in your family will be affected and it will change your relationship with them. Maybe it brings you closer to them or maybe it puts a wedge between you and the person or you shut down or withdraw or avoid or maybe it is the loss of someone close to you that shocks you the person that you thought would always be there is no longer there finally And this is the most potent encounter with the heavenly messengers you will ever have. You realize that one of the heavenly messengers has actually taken up residence in your very own body. You are getting old. Or you have been diagnosed with some kind of illness. Or you have been given a terminal diagnosis. And you find yourself suddenly in this reality that you thought would never happen to you. Some years ago, not too long ago, maybe three or four years ago, as one of the older Spirit Rock teachers, I realized I had become a heavenly messenger. That was quite a shock. I had become to the young students that I was encountering, like the old person was to the 29-year-old Buddha. So here I am today, a heavenly messenger, and I see that there are others somewhat similar to me here. We are all heavenly messengers together. Sooner or later, what we thought was outside of us, we will discover is actually living inside of us all the time. We will all become heavenly messengers of one kind or another. And the people around us will hopefully uh, take us in that way so that they are also awakening to this reality of life. This is part of life. This cannot be left out. This cannot be avoided. This cannot be skipped over. So what I want to talk about next is how this affects us. What the response is in in us, in, in humans generally, when our life is invaded by one of these heavenly messengers. It often provokes a sense of what? Let's hear some words. Panic. Panic. (laughs) Yes, that's good. What else? Fear. 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 Shock. Shock. Rage. Rage. Sadness. Sadness. Denial. Denial. Terror. Terror. All of these. This is so good. This is exactly what this word I want to bring into the conversation points to. There is a word in the Pali language, which was the language of the Buddha, that that is about this response. We don't have a, a word in the English language that really captures it, but the word in the Pali language is samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, samvega. 
And it is a complex mix of emotions and responses to the fact of aging, illness, and death. Perhaps the the phrase in English that comes closest to capturing this, we would say an existential crisis. You know, what is the meaning of life when there can be illness and death and sudden loss and all these things? So another monk, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, um, I'd like to read you what he says about Samvega. Samvega was what the young prince Siddhartha felt on his first exposure to aging, illness, and death. It's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range, just as we heard here. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. As well as an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of this meaningless cycle. Larry Rosenberg also describes it quite nicely. He says, Samvega is the urgent need to practice that can grow out of a heightened sense of the perishable nature of life. It can include a real feeling of shock and a sense not only that life doesn't last forever, but also that the way we have been living is wrong. Samvega might turn our world upside down, sending us off to a whole new way of life. It can light a fire under our practice. We may get less caught up in power, prestige, money, the acquisition of goods. Dharma teachings start to make real sense to us, and we begin to live them instead of just assenting intellectually. Samvega leads to a conversion of the heart from an egocentric existence to a search for that which is timeless, vast, and sacred. So this, this response of Samvega is necessary, you could say. It was necessary in the prince's life, and it is necessary, it may be necessary in our lives as well, to wake up out of this trance of immortality. You know that old 60s song, I'm going to live forever, I'm going to blah, 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 you know, we're just, you know, there was such a fervent feeling about that. We're, we're immortals here, you know, we know the truth, we'll tell you how to live, we've got it all together. Samvega, you know, we tend to go to sleep in our lives, don't we? You know, in your life when things are kind of pleasant and not too exciting, but there's this sort of sense of predictability and finally I'm here, this is a normal life, this is how life is supposed to be, everything is just, you know, unfolding as it should. and That's a really dangerous time. <laughs> Gandhi called it blessed monotony. Blessed monotony. Yeah. So, monotony, but it has a kind of blessing in it. And it won't last. 
the encounter with these heavenly messengers not only activates this quality, this response of Samvega, but sends us on a search for the resolution of this angst we feel. And in the story, this is represented by the fourth heavenly messenger, the the person in robes, the wandering contemplative, the person who is serene in the presence of aging, illness, and death. In relationship to this fourth heavenly messenger, it is said that another emotion arose in the Buddha's heart and will arise in our heart as well. And that is the emotion called in the Pali language pasada, P-A-S-A-D-A, pasada, meaning a kind of uh, confidence, serene, peaceful confidence that there is a way out. There is a practice, there is a path that can help us in relationship to these eventualities. There is a way to transform the shock of Samvega to see that aging, illness, and death are not the whole story, that there is something else. And what is this something else? That is our quest. That is our task to discover for ourselves. In the Buddhist tradition, it is called by mysterious words that don't really help us, but I need to mention them because this is the best words they can come up with. And we need to name that there is this possibility of a way out. The words used to describe this transcendent quality of mind and heart and understanding is the deathless. The deathless. The undying. The unborn. The unaging. That which is absolute. That which does not come and go. This is, in terms of language, this is a difficult area to describe. It cannot really be described. Perhaps in the Christian tradition, the phrase, the peace that passeth understanding is a close approximation to this this understanding of the deathless. So this quality of pasada is related to, to faith, to this sense that the resolution is to be found not in some blind belief in a dogma or doctrine or something outside of oneself, but actually the confidence that this resolution is to be found in one's own heart, in one's own being, through one's own practice. And pasada is a real quality that comes into being as we practice. To give you an example, I was talking to someone last week, a student who has been practicing about five years and is um, having a, he's been having a really, just a a series of challenging 
events and things going on in his life and in his practice. So he was describing some of this, and I asked him, I said, in the five years since you've been practicing, has it helped you? Oh, yes, it has helped me so much. That's Posada. (laughs) That even in the face of difficulty, of challenge, there's a sense of knowing that there is this way of practicing, of, of understanding that is like a refuge, that is like the light in the storm. So in the Buddhist tradition, which, as you know, emphasizes so much suffering and impermanence and emptiness, there is also this good news of the deathless. And when it comes to the heavenly messengers, this teaching is front and center. Because if it was only a teaching on we have to face aging, we have to face illness, we have but there was nothing in it that was inspiring of our own quest for the truth, for understanding, it would it would be rather sad. It would be rather dispiriting, rather discouraging. But there is this sense that through our practice and through our our very own efforts, just as the Buddha did, we can find this, this understanding that is liberating, that will help us uh, not only die well, but live well. So the heavenly messengers bring into focus the value of practice and that we can turn the pain of sickness and death into the joy of liberation. And we do this starting now. We don't need to wait to the moment of death. We learn to die now. Byron Katie, who's a teacher who comes here about once a year. um, How many of you have been in the, heard Byron Katie, some of you? Yeah, those of you who haven't, I would encourage you to find her. She's a wonderful teacher. Anyway, she said this, people think, I want to be conscious when I die. You know, you hear people say that. I want a conscious death. Sure, why not? I mean, that's a, you know, I want to be conscious when I die. But Katie says, that's hopeless. Even wanting to be conscious 10 minutes from now is hopeless. (laughs) You can only be conscious now. Everything you want is here in this moment. That's the important thing. Can you practice it now, not waiting till you're, you're dying? Can you be conscious now? Can you let go now? So mindfulness is a lot, a lot, a lot about letting go, isn't it? The moment we sit down and are told to bring our attention to the breath, we are learning to let go. We are learning to let go of this chitty-chat mind, this story we constantly are telling ourselves, to come back to just this simple, precious 
moment here. But we have a lot of resistance to letting go, don't we? So what's helpful in some ways about the heavenly messengers is that they don't give us a choice. Aging is in our face. Illness is in our face. Dying is in our face. There's only one way out, and that is to let go. So that is what's difficult about them. It's also what's the liberating potential. They ask us, force us, demand that we let go. And the teachings of the Buddha, mindfulness, teaches us that something comes to us from letting go that cannot come any other way. And we cannot know what that is without our own letting go. And it is a life-changing discovery. It's not what we really come for when we start our practice. I want to let go. That's not usually what drives people to practice. We have other ideas about what we'll get, who will be, how things will be so much easier. We have a lot of ideas. Those are good. They're good ideas. So when I went on my first retreat, I had no idea what I was getting into. Just as many people walk up the road here at Spirit Rock, past the gate, there's a whole retreat going on up there now, and people who've been practicing for a month, or they're starting the March retreat, and some people practicing two months. That's a lot of letting go. When you walk past the gate, you're letting go of your life in its usual habit, its usual form. You're letting go of what? attachments of your routines, of your cell phones, your email, your twittering, your <laughs> you're letting go of, of all kinds of habits that you have become used to as being part of your life. So when we go on retreat, we're setting aside these things that we like, that we get attached to, And we're opening ourselves to something else. And that's the value of retreat. And so when I was on my first long retreat, I went to IMS, Insight Meditation, for a three-month course. I didn't know really any of the teachers very well. I had met Joseph Goldstein. That was what inspired me to go. There were other teachers I didn't know. There was way out in the country at this funky old retreat center that, you know, it wasn't quite a condemned building, but close to it. <laughs> they had taken it over and were beginning to teach retreats. This was in 1980. It, it was So when I got there and I saw this place and I... Saw the the schedule was completely daunting, you know, from morning till night, sitting and walking, silence. There was just a lot that 
seem very, to me, at that moment in my life, quite unusual and quite daunting. So I had, I was confused, I was doubtful, I was wrestling with that. And then one morning I was in my room, waking up, sleeping, we were sleeping, I was in a pretty shabby room, you know, kind of foam mat on the floor, wallpaper peeling, drafty windows that shook and no furniture. It was, you know, rustic, to say the least. But I woke up one morning and I was in this state of near bliss, I would say. I was just happy. I was just delighted. I was just so content. I just had this sense of well-being that I had probably had never experienced before in my whole life. I just thought, oh, how can this be? I'm in this run-down old building with strange people. And, oh. But there it was. And I recognized that something had come from all this letting go, from this practice that was informing my understanding, which was that, oh, this is what happens when you practice. This is what comes. That cannot come in any other way. Doesn't come from living in a beautiful palace. Just doesn't come. There have been a number of studies that show that people are, are not very good at predicting what will make them happy. You know, in our culture, we think that being happy is about stuff and having all the right stuff. <laughs> Does it make us happy? Maybe for a little while. Not to put it down, but just to say it's an interesting thing to discover this other kind of well-being that brings with it so much contentment and joy that comes from practice. Okay, so so I think that I have been uh, pointing to, if not explicitly speaking about how these events of aging, illness, and death have this potential in them for deepening our spiritual awareness. They may hold for us some of the most important insights of our life. One thing I've been doing in the past few years as part of my own aging process, part of my own practice, part of my own teaching research is to try to hear as directly as possible from people who are ill, who are very old, who are in the process of dying. I want to hear what their experience is, what is actually happening inside of them. And it's often not what you would expect. As an example, I'd like to tell a story that Larry Rosenberg shared about his own father, 
who was in his 90s, I believe, when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he had to be put in a, in a home. And at first, Larry noticed his dad's deterioration. They were very close, he and his dad. So he followed his father's descent into Alzheimer's closely and noticed, you know, the usual confusion and disorientation. And, you know, it was like, oh, so sad. But then he said, after a couple of years, something seemed to change. Sometimes my dad seemed to be in such a state of peace that it was startling. He seemed more at peace than I was. This is a meditation teacher. And one time Larry's wife said to Dad, he said, he, she said, Dad, you've always been so pro-life, so full of vitality and vigor. You're a lover of life, and that's so great. Dad sat quietly for several minutes, then said, that's not true. I just learned the value of life six months ago. That really bowled us over. He had learned the value of life while he had Alzheimer's and spent his days in a wheelchair. He had continued to learn even when he was old and ill. What a surprise. Some of you have heard this quote from Steve Jobs after he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He said, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything... All external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure. These things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. That's a tremendous learning. Not everyone who is ill or old continues to learn, but what if that possibility were true? And you began to hold it that way. What if you could open your own mind to that as a possibility for your own aging, your illness, your dying, that there is still something of value here to be learning, to be understanding. So this is an attitude that we can bring, that this time of life can be and continue to be revelatory, insightful, heart-opening. So I've said quite a bit here, and I want to give you some time now um, to kind of absorb what has been said so far and reflect a bit on your own experience of the heavenly messengers. Heavenly messengers are both intensely personal. You know, we age alone in some ways. We get ill alone. We die alone. They're very intimate experiences 
But they're also completely universal. Everyone comes into contact with these realities. So there's sort of a paradox there. But reflecting on your own experience, your own intimate experience of the heavenly messengers and how you have responded to their presence. What is your response? Your resistance, your whatever it is. So that will be what we will be exploring verbally. But now I want to um, give you some time to go outside in the beautiful sunshine to do a walking meditation. We'll take a half an hour for walking. And as you're walking, let yourself, as we did in the meditation, feel your body. Feel your body in the posture of walking. Feel yourself stepping on the ground. You can walk on a path back and forth as we do in formal practice. Or you can walk slowly and really take your time just walking slowly down the path. Every now and then stop. Feel your feet. Open your ears to hear sounds. Open your eyes to see colors, shapes, light, shadow. And feel the sensations in your body. What is it like to be alive and walking on this beautiful earth? Thich Nhat Hanh, who is right at this moment gravely ill, has been for some time, uh, he, he said many beautiful things, but one thing he said was, uh, the miracle is not to walk on water, but to walk as a human being on this beautiful earth and know that you're walking. So that is your walking practice. We'll have a bell. Let's see. We'll have a bell at... 11.50, and when you hear the bell, that's time to, to come back in. Let's also keep this in silence, because there's been a lot of teaching here. be nice to just have some time in silence to absorb. So when you hear the bell, please return and enjoy your walking. Thank you. This is true also for those of you at home. You can also do a walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.